Hey, it's NPR's Book of the Day. I'm Andrew Limbong. Yes, I know it's Saturday, uh, but for the next few weeks, we're actually going to be bringing you an extra episode going over more of the books we loved this year. And one of my favorite tags on our annual guide is the one for seriously great writing. These are the books where you could really see the writers flex a little bit on the page, you know? And there's actually a little bit of writing advice in the interview I'm about to play for you. It's between NPR's Ari Shapiro and author Tanya James about her book, Loot, which is about a piece of Indian art that pushes back against British colonialism. But in this interview, James says something about leaving room in her own work for discovery. Because if she's just writing stuff she already knows, she says the writing feels dead in the water. That's ahead. This message comes from NPR sponsor Hulu. Don't miss the new docuseries Black Twitter, A People's History, from Onyx Collective and Hulu. Directed by Prentice Penny, executive producer of Insecure, Black Twitter, A People's History, tells the story of how black voices found a new home online and blossomed into a force for change while laying down some hilarious tweets along the way. From the memes to the movements, see how this powerful community shapes culture, society, and politics. Black Twitter, A People's History, is now streaming on Hulu. In the late 1700s, an Indian ruler commissioned an incredible work of art. It's carved out of wood, a tiger attacking a man. And inside the tiger is a musical instrument similar to a pipe organ. The Victoria and Albert Museum in London posted this video showing how the automaton makes music with the turn of a crank. This real creation is at the center of a new novel, Loot. The plot travels from India to Europe, touching on war, immigration, love, and art. Tanya James is the author. Welcome. Hi, Ari. Thank you for having me. Will you describe the first time you saw the wooden tiger that is at the center of this novel? Yes, I first encountered Tipu's tiger in a book and Tipu's tiger Tipu is the ruler who commissioned it. Yes, it's it's a giant mechanical tiger as you described and I just was so enchanted by it because I'd seen British propaganda, you know, cartoons and ethnographic representations of Indians but I'd never seen Indian art depicting the colonizer or the English and it was just so darkly irreverent and kind of absurd and kind of funny almost in a gruesome way and i it just it almost feels like an embodiment of a political cartoon where the tiger representing india is destroying the englishman oh, the invader oh totally yeah and i think tipu sultan who commissioned it it he he just he was so contemptuous of the british and so determined to drive them out of india and this was actually, I think I'd read somewhere that this was a gift to his sons who had been taken hostage by the British. So, you know, he was he was just as much interested in, you know, presenting a certain idea of nationhood as we are today. And did you immediately start to wonder about the artisan who carved it? Oh, yeah. I was really attracted to the object. And I couldn't find out anything other than it was a collaboration between a local Mysorean artisan and a French engineer. And at first I found that lack of information to be really limiting, but then it became a kind of invitation for me to kind of bring my imagination to bear on these real-life objects and events. And I remember early on when I was writing, this phrase kept popping up, which was, leave leave your mark. And mm. this character kept thinking to himself that he wanted to leave a mark on history or leave a mark on the world or to have some power beyond the grave. And now I think 
I probably those that phrase was probably a product of me thinking about erasure and about how so many artists and engineers have been, you know, erased from history and we will only know them through the work that has survived them. But is it also a personal desire to leave your mark with the literature that you create? You know, I've never thought about I I guess I'm sort of more of a pragmatist than a boss. <laughs> I I I noticed that you know books that you were... say more of a pragmatist than a boss. We <laughs> haven't said yet the character, the local Mysorean artist, is right. named a boss. He's yes. a teenager when we meet him, and it is his wish to leave a mark on the world. Yes, yes, and he has this very idealistic idea and this very romantic idea about his destiny as an artist. And I've never and that's not you. <laughs> no, I've never really thought about my destiny beyond the end of the day, <laughs> um, just trying to get through the next chapter or, you mm-hmm. know, trying to get to the end of the book. But he's also the kind of guy who is a product of his times. These are very brutal times. And and so perhaps the extremity of his situation leads him to have a kind of extreme romantic view about what life could be for himself. This is a great place for you to read a paragraph where you describe the art of woodworking. Abbas is a teenager in the workshop. Will you read this from page 85? Sure. Abbas doesn't mind the silence. In fact, he prefers the sole company of carving, the sanctity of it, the way the wood almost displays a wit of its own, how it makes and unmakes its own rules, that a cut cannot be undone, that the grain may change depending on the cut, that you might expect a line to go one way only for it to swerve, that total control will never be yours. Does that share something with the experience of writing a novel where the plot may go in a direction you weren't expecting and you need to follow it? Yeah, I I think that's actually the most ideal situation when I'm writing is when the writing feels like it's running just past my fingertips. And mm. I feel like um, it doesn't happen often, but it's exhilarating when it does happen. And, you know, it's often happens on the sentence level where I think I know where the sentence is going and then it turns on me or then it leaps into the mind of someone who seemed peripheral and unimportant but shows me something about the story I didn't see uh, and, and rather than fight that or being scared by that, you are delighted by it. That's something that you aspire to. Oh, yeah. I think it's really, I think when the writing is only telling me what I already know, it feels sort of dead in the water and kind of flat. Mm. But when when it has a life of its own, the, the work is kind of alive and it's sort of a dance between me and the the material. The plot of the story unfolds as almost like a heist caper. So colonial British powers take the tiger, a boss wants it back. And it, it it raises a question that many museums are wrestling with today, including the Victoria and Albert, where this real tiger is kept. And the question is, who should own a thing? And, and your book doesn't offer a simple answer. Did writing it give you any insights? You know, I am, I've been following the restitution movement with interest. And I think every object has its own context. I personally am interested in confrontations with history, the ways in which, you know, museums are trying to address the fact that they're actually politicized places. And, you know, imagining an alternate history for this object was just one way for me to do that. Can you tell me about the title Loot? L-O-O-T, it's not the musical instrument, L-U-T-E, but it doesn't really dance around the idea that this object 
is perhaps not the rightful possession of the people who have it in their custody. Yeah, loot is a word that entered the English language around, I think, um, the turn of the 18th century. And I really liked it because it, its origins are Sanskritic. Hmm. And it means to plunder, to thieve. And I think that there wasn't a word in the English language that could encapsulate the level of state-sanctioned theft that was going on. And oh. so I just, I love that the word captured this moment in time so specifically. And I've never written a novel where I knew the title from early on in the conception, but this was one where the moment I heard it, I, I just knew. And it was sort of a talisman as I was continuing on and trying to go from draft to draft. You know, it was such a, a word with such authority. Yeah, um, and how did you learn that it had Sanskrit roots? That's fascinating. I, I you know, in all the those phases of research, as much as I, I complained about them, you know, that was, there, there are these, you know, really amazing finds. Yeah. Tanya James, her new novel is Loot. Thank you for talking with us about it. Thank you so much, Harry. And that's it for this week on NPR's Book of the Day. If you want more, you can sign up for our newsletter at npr.org slash newsletter slash books. And just a reminder, you can sign up for Book of the Day Plus, which allows you to listen to Book of the Day without any sponsor breaks. And you'll be supporting our books coverage at NPR. You can find out more at plus.npr.org slash book of the day. And a big thank you to everyone who has already signed up. I'm Andrew Limbong. The podcast is produced by Isabella Gomez-Sarmiento and Ashley Montgomery and edited by Megan Sullivan. Our founding editor is Petra Mayer. The show Elements for this week were produced and edited by Allison Mollenkamp, Ed McNulty, Kat Lonsdorf, Lee Hale, Ben Abrams, Rena Advani, Megan Lim, Sarah Handel, Fernando Naro-Roman, Matthew Sherman, Melissa Gray, Ryan Bank, Tindy Ermias, and Lena Muhammad. Beth Donovan is our managing editor. Thanks for listening. It's a high-stakes election year, so it's not enough to just follow along. You need to understand what's happening so you are fully informed come November. Every weekday on the NPR Politics Podcast, our political reporters break down important stories and backstories from the campaign trail so you understand why it matters to you. Listen to the NPR Politics Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. Support for NPR and the following message come from IXL Online. Is your child asking questions on their homework you don't feel equipped to answer? IXL Learning uses advanced algorithms to give the right help to each kid, no matter the age or personality. One subscription gets you everything. One site for all the kids in your home, pre-K to 12th grade. Make an impact on your child's learning. Get IXL now. And NPR listeners can get an exclusive 20% off IXL membership when they sign up today at IXL.com NPR. This message comes from NPR sponsor, Viore, a new perspective on performance apparel. Clothing designed with premium fabrics, built to move in, styled for life. For 20% off your first purchase, go to viore.com NPR.